Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. I want to welcome all of you who feel comfortable coming back to the campus, and I want to say thank you to our staff and volunteers who really cleaned this facility, all areas of the facility, in between every service to make sure it is as sanitary as it possibly can be during this pandemic. Would you give them a big hand for just the care they give and making sure? So I appreciate that. And thank those of you who watch us online every week and especially for sharing the services with your family and friends. I really believe this is the reason the church is growing exponentially through this time of a pandemic. And in this series, what's next? It is basically a return to the basics because before Jesus left, he established his organization, this organism on the earth called his church. And everything, think about this, everything God does, all that he does on the earth is preoccupied with his church. Everything that he does on the earth centers around his church. He doesn't go outside of it. He works in and through his church, which is why the Bible refers to the church as the body of Christ. Uh, it is um, uh, the, the mystical, spiritual body of Christ on the earth, this thing called a church. So you have a church that is universal in the sense that everyone who knows Jesus, anyone who is connected to him, whether they're in Asia or Europe or anywhere in the world, they're in the church just as we're in the church. There is the church that is spiritual, mystical, invisible. And then there's a church that is visible, local, tangible. It is a local church. And you look in the New Testament and you had the church at Jerusalem, you had the church at Corinth, you had the church at Thyatira, you had the church at Ephesus. You had all the various local communities, local churches in those communities that function. And both of those churches function as the body of Christ. It's a beautiful metaphor of us understanding what the church is to be. It is the body of Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, he said, no healthy eye ever looked at its hand and said, I don't have any need of you. A healthy body recognizes every part is significant, every part is important. You've never looked at one of your body parts and said, I don't think I need that, I never use it. <laughs> every part is significant, it's all important. And every member of a church is significant, every person is important. You may not always feel that way, but I'm just suggesting your heart that there, is no, there are no unimportant people in the kingdom of God. Everyone is unique, everyone is significant, and so he said, my church, where I'm going to do the work that I'm going to do on the earth, will be centered around this body, this body of Christ. And then the, the Bible uses another metaphor to describe a church. It says we're a fellowship. We're a fellowship. Like in our title, we are Metroport City's Fellowship Church. So it's a fellowship, meaning that we are in a relationship with one another. We try to help and encourage one another. Uh, we are in partnership with each other. We have a mutual interest. We share a mutual goal. And so we are a, a fellowship. So a church is a body. A church is a fellowship. And then he said a church is a flock, a flock. Now, I never understood why of all the animals in the world that he would compare us, his followers, to, he compares us to sheep. Now, every time I think about that, I think sheep are the dumbest animals that God ever created. There's no such thing as a trained sheep. 
You cannot train a sheep. It's not possible to train a sheep. It's like Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. And so God was thinking in his love and admiration for his kids, what is a good metaphor for my kid? I know sheep. <laughs> so the Bible describes a church, we're a flock. We're just a bunch of sheep. We just kind of gather together and we listen to our great shepherd as he guides us and leads us and feeds us and sometimes shears us. And so we are, we're sheep. So we, we are a body, we are a fellowship, we are a flock. Uh, then we're a family. We're a family. Uh, that's why in a lot of traditions, I know my dad was a pastor, and in, his, in our, my church tradition, we call brothers and sisters, you know, brothers so-and-so, sisters, so that might be your tradition too. That's great, that's fine. It's just simply a reminder that we're a family, and as a family, we ought to care for each other, we ought to be interested in what benefits one another, and I say all that just to remind you of the significance of the church and how we are to be uh, interrelated with one another. God didn't design us to do life independent of him or independent of each other. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 14, none of us live to ourselves alone. None of us die to ourselves alone. God designed us for relationships. He designed us to need one another. I heard of a psychologist who examined the way Christians do fellowship with each other, and he said, after examining them, he said, they remind me a lot of porcupines on a cold night. He said, because of the cold, they're driven together for survival and to stay warm. And so once they're all together and they're connected with each other and they're close to each other and they're warm, he said, out come the quills. And they walk away from each other and they all, oh, too close, too close. I don't, I, don't, I don't like you like that. And so you kind of walk away and all of a sudden because of the cold, they're forced back into relationships with each other. And so to survive, they need each other and they gather together again. And then once they're close, out come the quills and they drive each other away. He said, Christians refer to that as fellowship. They call that fellowship. He says, to me, it looks like some weird religious dance. And I can tell you, we've all done the dance. We've all done that. We've all been in church because we felt that we needed to. We're at a point or maybe a crisis point in life where we came to church for that reason. And that's okay. But the reality of it is you and I need a consistent relationship with this organism, with this organization that Jesus established here on the earth called a church. You need a family. You need a flock. You need a body to belong to. You need a fellowship that you can be a part of. And again, everything God set up and everything that he did, he ordained it and he, he uh, uh, set it up to be done in and through his church, his body on the earth. And two of the most significant things that he gave to the church that I'll remind you of was first of all that great commandment that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Matthew 22, when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and great command. And then he said, the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So a church, we should be known by our, our, for our love of God and our love for each other. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this shall all men know you are my disciples. You're the real deal. You're the genuine article. How? If you love one another. The biggest challenge that we have and the biggest opportunity that we have is to genuinely love each other. And the way to love each other more is to love God more. Because the closer you get to him, the closer you'll get to each other, just as the spokes on a wheel get closer, the closer they get to the center, the more you get closer to God and the more you love him, the more you will naturally love one another. 
And so there is that great commandment to love, and a church should be known for its love. It's what authenticates us. But the second thing is the verse I want to share with you this morning is in Matthew chapter 28, and we call it the Great Commission. What are we supposed to do? What's next? What is the church supposed to be about? The Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And here it is again, notice with me. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Don't stop there. Teach them then to obey everything I have commanded you. And then he said, surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. So if the church is the, uh, the hub upon which all of God's activity takes place on the earth, and if everything God is doing in our lives today centers around his church, then I want to give you three different ways to think about the work of God in and through the life of his church. First of all, consider this. There is the work of God on us. The work of God on us. The Great Commission begins with this idea of going and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the work of God on every single person in the world. It is the heart of God and it is the desire of God for every person to know him as Savior. As simple as that. In fact, in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Bible says God is not willing. What is the will of God? Well, here it is. He is not willing that any should perish. He didn't say many. He said that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is the will of God that every single solitary person on the planet know him as Savior. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world <laughs> that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said, whosoever will, let them come to me. And he who comes to me, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out. What should be on the leading edge of a spirit-filled, a Jesus-thrilled, Bible-drilled church should be a heart for people who don't know Jesus. Just what I talked about last weekend. And so the very first thing you see if, as we consider what's next is to consider the fact that God is at work and initially he is at work on people to bring those people to himself. Now the Bible describes several different ways whereby God brings people to himself. What works on you and what's effective for you might not be effective to me. What's effective for your friend might not be effective to you. So God used different means and he uses different things to bring people to himself. Some people respond when they see the light, and some people respond when they feel the heat. <laughs> it's motivation, and God will do whatever he needs to do to give a person a, a, a point, uh, uh, to bring a person, rather, to a point where they will either receive him or reject him, but it's the work of God on us. Think about it this way. He uses creation to testify of his presence. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Bible says all that God has created testifies to the fact that there is a God. And there are people that have been brought to an awareness of the Savior by the incredible beauty of the earth and looking at all that he has created. So he'll use creation. You read Romans chapter 2 and verse 15, the Bible says he'll use your conscience. The Bible says that God has written his law on the hearts of mankind. John 1 says he is the light that lights everyone who comes into the world. Meaning there is an awareness of God written on the hearts of every person regardless of where they are in this world. 
That's why if you study uh, primitive uh, people groups anywhere on the planet, if you study those people groups, you will find they have some type of worship. They may worship an animal. They may have some sacrificial system. They may have some form. Where did they get that idea? Where did they get the idea that they need to worship? And where do they get the need to worship? Well, it's because the Bible says God's written that on their heart. He's given them enough light to know they need a Savior. And so God will use creation and he will use conscience. By the way, God will use circumstances to bring people to that point. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. You know God will use good things. Sometimes God uses bad things. I told you last week where Jesus said, if your right eye, remember, offend you, pluck it out, better go into heaven with one than to hell with two. If your right arm offend you, cut it off, you better go into heaven with one than into hell with two. I told you what he didn't mean by what he said. He didn't mean that he's a sovereign sadist that takes pleasure in pain. What he did mean by what he said was, if it takes pain ultimately to bring you to Jesus, he's more just to allow the pain than to allow you to go merrily on your way out into eternity without him. What's my point? My point is sometimes it's good things that motivate people to turn to Jesus and to recognize God's working on me. Sometimes it's bad things that motivate people to recognize God is loving and working on me to bring me to himself. So he'll use all these things at his disposal to try to bring people to the point where they will either receive him or reject him. By the way, it's the whole point of the Bible. Jesus said concerning the scripture in John 5, 39, he said, study the Bible for in this you will find that it speaks of me. Listen, everything in the Bible is about Jesus. If you want a good outline for the Bible, it's pretty deep and profound, but I'll give it to you. The Old Testament is simply this, Jesus is coming. All of the Old Testament, they're looking forward. Jesus is coming. He's coming. One day Jesus will be here. Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming. That's the Old Testament. Then you get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The outline is point two. Jesus is here. <laughs> Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Get to Acts 1. You have the ascension. And all the way to Revelation 22, 21, the theme of the Bible is point three. Jesus is coming again. <laughs> it's all about Jesus. The most significant thing, the only salvific thing, the only thing, listen, that makes a difference in eternity is what did you do with Jesus? We can agree to disagree. You can say potato, potato, tomato, tomato. It doesn't matter. What is important is what did you do with Jesus? Now, it's fun to have religious talks and discussions, and some even times it's fun to have some debates about things. You know, are you a, are, are you a pre-tribulationalist? Are you a mid-tribulationalist? Are you a post-tribulationalist? Are you a premillennialist? Are you a postmillennialist? Are you an all-millennialist? You just don't believe in it. Oh, I don't believe in it. <laughs> what are you? Well, that's fascinating. By the way, just for your I'm a pre-tribulational premillennial. I'm a preemie. <laughs> I believe the next thing that happens is the rapture of the church, for what that's worth. But the point I'm making is, when you get to eternity, God isn't going to look at you and go, where were you on, 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 on this uh, pre-post or all-millennial stuff? Where were you on this uh, pre uh, uh, mid or, 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 or post-tribulational stuff. Where were you on all that? Because that matters. No, what he's going to say is, what did you do with Jesus? Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Guys, we drive hard to the hoop here every week uh, about people knowing Jesus because that's the only thing that will matter in eternity. And it's the big reason God put his church here on the earth as an effort to reach out to people because God is constantly, consistently, continually at work on people knowing him. 
And by the way, another thing he uses is not only creation, conscience, circumstances, the canon of scripture, he'll use our companions, the people he puts in your life. Mark chapter two, remember that Jesus is in the house and the crowds are there and it was packed to capacity and these four guys start thinking about their buddy who was on a, a cot, who was not able to get there, but their friend needed Jesus. And they go and they pick him up and they carry that boy to Jesus. And when they can't get him through the door, they get him up on the roof, they get creative, they cut a hole in the roof, and they drop that guy down right in front of Jesus. My goodness. They simply could not force him to receive Jesus because they want to make sure he had every opportunity to. And when you read the narrative, he actually did. What's the point I'm making? The point I'm making is everybody in the room and all of you watching me online, you know Jesus today. Chances are because someone in your world introduced you to him. Maybe a mom, a dad, maybe a friend, a neighbor. There was a companion somewhere in your world that made the introduction that at least brought you to a point where you could receive him or reject him. That's the way he works. He works on us. In fact, what happens is once you encounter Jesus as a lost person, once you encounter him, the first thing he tries to do in your life is to convince you that he is who he says he is. You remember what the Bible says there in Hebrews 11, verse 6, he who comes to God must first of all believe that he is. You have to be convinced. We have a recovery ministry in our church, and those that are involved in recovery ministry will tell you the first step to getting help is admitting you need it. And no one has ever come to Jesus until they got to that point in life where they were convinced that they needed to. That's why when Jesus was dealing with the tax collector who had com uh, 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 committed his life to following after Jesus, and so he wanted to get out of the old profession, and Jesus goes to the going away party again in Mark 2, and in that going away party, the Bible says they're eating and drinking, and they're celebrating the retirement of the tax collector. And the Pharisee was standing outside looking in because they didn't want to identify or be around these sinners. And Jesus perceives their heart. He goes out and gets in their grill. He says, look, I didn't come into this world to call self-righteous people to repentance. I came to call sinners. And let me tell you something. You, you don't come to Jesus till you know you need to. And when you come to Jesus, you know what you find? He's a friend of sinners. He will stand next to you. He will stand by you. He will in no wise turn you away or cast you out. He's all about reaching people who do not know him. And the church needs to be about that as well. So the first step, he has to convince them. You need Jesus. <laughs> the next thing he does after he's convinced them is he convicts them. Now that I know intellectually that I need Jesus, then it's the conviction of my heart that leads me to a point where I'll receive him. When you read in Acts chapter 2, as the church was launched, when the Holy Spirit came and indwelt that church and they were launched, and Peter preached that day the message of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, the Bible says when they heard his word, they were cut to the heart. That's conviction. Conviction is something that, it's something that says deep within your heart, I need to change. I need something in my life more powerful than what I have. I need the Savior. If you've never identified conviction and you know what it looks like, it's a, it's a little bit like missing an anniversary and the feeling you have when you miss the anniversary or a birthday or some significant event that happened in the life of a loved one and you just, you just blew it. And you know that feeling, oh no. <laughs> That's a little bit what conviction feels like. 
It's when you come face to face with the reality that I can't be good enough to get myself into heaven. I can't join enough churches. I can't be baptized in enough baptistries. I can't turn over enough good leaves. I can't give enough money to move the heart of God because none of that matters. I need Jesus to save me and to forgive me. And until you're convinced of that and convicted by that, then nothing will happen in your heart. But once he convinces you and he convicts you, the third thing he does is he will convert you. He will absolutely, radically change your life. Look at the verse I provided for you on the screen. The Bible says, in whom you trusted. When did I trust him? After I heard the word. What was this word? The gospel of his salvation. In whom also, having believed, at that moment I believed in Jesus. Now listen again, the word believe means more than give a mental attestment to, or uh, it means more than just mentally accept what I've heard to be true, because the Bible says the devil believes and even trembles. So this conversion takes place uh, when I do more than just intellectually accept that Jesus came into the world in the manger, he lived a sinless life, he died a vicarious death, he rose on Easter, he ascended to the Father. I believe that happened. Well, that's not su uh, sufficient because the devil believes that happened. Then what, what does it mean to believe? The belief is to place my faith and trust in that. It is to say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I receive you. I invite you into my heart. With all that I am, I receive all that you are. That's to believe. I heard about a man who was translating the Bible in a, in a language that they had no Bibles in this particular uh, dialect. And so he was working hard to translate. And the word believe came up and he was struggling to try to find the right word that would communicate what it means to believe in this, in this native dialect. And so he's working in this process of trying to translate the word believe. And a, a tribal leader came in to see him and ask what he was doing. And he told him. And the tribal leader just sat down in the chair. And the man said, that's it. What did you just do? And the tribal leader said, well, uh, sit in the chair. <laughs> he said, well, what is it that made you think that when you sat in the chair, the chair would hold you up and you abandon everything else and just sat down in the chair? He said, that's what it is to believe. Give me that word. And they were able to translate that word, which means put all that you have and all that you are on that, in that, believing that it will carry you, it will hold you. And when you believe on Jesus, after you've heard the message, you are saying, God, with all that I am, I trust all that you are. And notice what he said. Again, don't stop reading. He says, that moment you're sealed, sealed, how? With the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit comes in your life, he seals you in the deal. You're, you're sealed there, and note now, the Spirit of God is the guarantee of our inheritance. How do I know I'm going to heaven one day? Because of the work of God on me. I believed with all my heart. The Holy Spirit came in and sealed me in the deal, and my salvation is good until I step into the presence of God. And notice what, how he describes it, until the redemption of the purchased possession. What is the redemption? It means when he breaks the seal. Remember the old mason jar? Or you have anything you buy has the jelly or the jam, and you see the seal that's popped down, and the minute you open it, the seal pops up. Well, what are you doing? You're redeeming what's inside there. You're saying, a brother's hungry. I'm going to have some jelly. <laughs> and in order to get to that, you've got to break the seal. You've got to redeem what's inside there. And he's saying the Holy Spirit is going to keep us here on this earth sealed until one day we step into the presence of Jesus and our salvation, our redemption is complete at home with God forevermore. So don't miss this. 
One of the most significant things he'll do is he'll do his work on you. Secondly and hurriedly, you see the work of God in me. Now that I've become a Christ follower and I've stepped through that threshold and I've said with all my heart, I believe all that you are, now God doesn't stop there. Remember in John 3, he said you're born again. Life doesn't end with a birth, it just begins there. The new birth experience just opens the door of wonderful opportunities uh, to understand how God has designed and created me. So I'm understanding now that God has a purpose for my life. So I'm stepping into a process that God is working something out in and through my life. And notice what it says, Romans 8, 28. We know now that all things, God is working all things to the good. For who? For those of us who love him and have a calling according to his purpose. Meaning that I understood his work on me was to bring me into a relationship with him. I'm a part of his spiritual, mystical family now on the earth because I know him as Savior. And now I'm going to identify with his local body on the earth so that I can further begin to understand the significance of what he's doing in and through my life. That's why in the Great Commission it talks about the significance of baptism. Baptism, is, in my view, is kind of the doorway into the local church. It was an identity. People back in that day were identified with those other Christ followers through their baptism. Bapti baptism, the Greek baptizo. The word means to dip or plunge or immerse. That's why we baptize by immersion in our church, because it is exactly the mode that the Bible speaks of, to dip, plunge, or immerse. It's the thing we can do exactly as Jesus did. When John was baptizing and Jesus submitted to baptism as he was uh, beginning to start his earthly ministry, the Bible says when Jesus came up out of the water, the dove descended and said, voice from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, you can't come out of something that you hadn't first gone down into. So Jesus went down into the Jordan and came up out of the Jordan to be baptized, baptizo, to dip, plunge, immerse. And that, back in that day, as in our day, it was an identification with other Christ followers. It was significant. It was saying, by, with my body, I recognize the death as I'm going into the water, the burial as I'm going under the water, and the resurrection as I'm coming up out of the water of Jesus Christ. It is, get this, a public testimony of a private transaction. I'm publicly testifying to a transaction that I've experienced in my life. And so it's part of me becoming identified into a local body, a local ecclesia. It's a part of me becoming a part of a local church so that I can begin to connect some dots to comprehend what God is doing in my life. And one of the things I hope we help you with each week and those of you who are watching, I hope we help you connect some dots. I'm convinced this morning all the dots won't be connected to we're in heaven, but I hope I can help you connect some of the dots to recognize God is allowing things to happen or he's causing things to happen in your life ultimately for your good and for his glory. Why? Look at verse 29 of the verse I've given you here. It is ultimately to conform us into the image of his son meaning he's calling us out of a secular society to make us unique and different, to be uniquely different, his kids, so that we look more like him, to conform us into the image of his son. When God formed man from the dust of the ground, it's called the Omago Dei, in the image of God. But when sin entered the picture, that image was wrecked. And until that person encounters God, the wrecked image has got to go into this body shop. It takes a, a lifetime to kind of get it back in its original form, and it won't be perfected until it's in his presence. 
But throughout our lifetime, God is trying to get the dents and the, and, and the frame straightened out, and he's trying to get the body back so that it begins to look like what he originally created it to look like, to be conformed into the image of his son. I don't know if you ever watch any of those shows on television that have these guys that are going out getting gold out of the earth and how they do that and how they process that. One of the interesting things about getting gold is, first of all, you have to get the mineral out of the mountain. That's step one. Get the mineral out. It's like a, I saw an old uh, recipe for rabbit stew. You know what the first line on rabbit stew was? First catch the rabbit. Anyway, so the first thing you have to do before you get gold, you have to get the gold out of the mountain. You have to get the mineral out of the mountain. And here's the second thing. It's just as profound. You have to get the mountain out of the mineral. And once you've gotten the gold out of the mountain, now you've got to get the mountain out of the gold, and that takes a process. God's work in us. And the process, guys, sometimes can be painful. Sometimes the gold has to be crushed. Sometimes the gold has to be uh, broken. And ultimately, the gold has to be refined. The refiner's art is an ancient art. It goes way back into biblical time. And it's where a refiner would set over a vessel as the mineral is in the vessel. It's overheat and the water in the vessel is boiling. And the refiner sets over the vessel and he's watching as the mineral is boiling. And he has in his hand what is called a skimmer. And all the impurities that are in the vessel come to the surface. And as they come to the surface, he skims them from the surface. You know what happens sometimes in your life and mine? God reveals things to us. Matthew 7, he said, it's not what goes into the person that defiles them, it's what comes out. Always use this illustration to help underscore that. When you leave here in a little while and you hit 1709, Timberland, or 35, somebody cuts you off, somebody jumps through the four-way ahead of you, it wasn't their turn, they don't know how to drive through those roundabouts, I'm trying to get on the same page with you now. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, something comes out of you that wasn't real sanctified. Don't look so pious now. I know who I'm talking to. Let me ask you a question. Did that person put that into your heart or did they draw that out of your heart? Reality is it was already in there. What happened with the pressure, what happened with the problem, what happened was what was in the person came out of the person because the circumstances were right. And when God puts us in the fire, sometimes he's refining us so what's in us comes out of us so that we can deal with it. So he'll skim it and he'll skim it until, listen, the refiner stays in the process until the refiner can see his reflection in the mineral. And when he can see his reflection in the mineral, he knows the mineral is pure, conformed, into the image of his son. You know why that's important? Because I've said before, your life may be the only Bible somebody ever reads. The only picture that some friend of yours may ever see of Jesus is the picture of him that they see in you. So we have to be conformed into the image of, a, of his son. Here's the last thought. And then it's becoming, coming to a point where we understand God's work through us. He has a purpose. He has a plan. And when I'm connected into the life of the church, it begins, I begin to kind of connect dots. I begin to see how I fit and where I fit, what I can do well and what I can't. And, and part of the role, the Bible says here in Ephesians 4, that pastors, spiritual leaders in the life of the church equip saints to do the work of ministry. And part of equipping people is giving people an opportunity to see where they fit, how they fit, how they're unique. 
if you're a people person, putting you in places where uh, you can connect with people. I mean, we want the people, people out greeting and out being, uh, we don't want people that hate people doing that. <laughs> and there are people that just don't like people that much. I'm not hating on you, I'm just saying I get you. I understand you, you're just not one of those people persons. God, by the way, he wired you that way. You know why he wired you that way? Because if he made you a people person when he gave you these other gifts, you'd be preoccupied messing with people and not doing the thing he's gifted you to do. Isn't that a nice way to think of that? Anyway, so part of our job, we, we give you different opportunities. Try this, try that. All right, won't we put you over? Why don't you try this? Why don't you try this other thing? And part of it is just you get into a process where you start connecting dots and you really see how God has gifted you, how he's created you, how he's enabled you to minister to other people. And ultimately, what we want you to do is do better what you do best. And it's understanding God has a ministry that's going to happen through our life. He said the result of it is the church is built up, it's edified. People come to Christ when a church functions like that. You know, one of the most powerful things about a church doing ministry the right way is that people receive something from a church like that that they wouldn't receive otherwise. I mean, he says, if you look down in verse 16 of Ephesians 4, that the secret of a church being healthy is in its connection. The, 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 the hand is connected to the arm with the wrist. The wrist is a point of connection, that the body receives all that it needs because it's connected so one of the things we talk about is connecting you with God and connecting you with one another because the ministry happens in the connection. Think about Halloween and you see something kind of scary. You walk up with the kids and you're trick-or-treating and there's a hand laying out in the yard. and You're freaked out by the hand in the yard. Or you see a head just over here on a table and all of a sudden, that's, why is that scary? There's nothing scary about a head. I'm looking at a bunch of heads. There's nothing scary about hands. I got one, you got, I got two, in fact. You got, you got a couple, I'm looking at your hands. There's nothing scary about that. But if I go to my truck and there's a head out there on the hood, <laughs> this brother's gonna freak. I get in there and there's a hand next to the seat next to me. It's why There's nothing wrong with the hand or the head. It ain't connected. <laughs> and God created us to be connected. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians 12, no healthy eye ever looked at the hand and said, I don't have the need of you. I'm kind of back where I started. And that is in the life of the church, we get connected in the areas that we're gifted where we can serve and bless and give and receive ministry. And that's important because he said in Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't, don't neglect coming to church. Don't neglect being a part of church. Don't neglect watching online. Don't neglect that. He said, as many do. And then he said this, so much the more as we see the day of the Lord approaching. One of the incredible, most encouraging things those first century Christians did is they connected into a church because God encouraged them through their connection in the life of the church. You know why that was important? Because in the first century, they were going through a crackdown. They were going through one of the greatest persecutions that the church had ever experienced. Roman outlawed the church. Anybody identified with the church could lose their job. Uh, in the religious context, they were being desynagogued. Why? They were just part of the church. They saw Christians as being a part of a cult. They said, you people are following after Jesus that we crucified. You, you're, 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 you've lost your minds. And yet the church grew the greatest when it was persecuted the most. And one of the significant things that happened, happened in Acts chapter 4, for the Bible says in the midst of this great persecution, listen to this, they had all things common. 
And it's not teaching socialism. What it's teaching is they were simply saying, this guy doesn't have this. I've got two of these. I'll give one of mine to them to help them through a hard time. You see the difference? It was these people saying, look, this people, they're going through a hard time, so I'm going to help them go through this hard time. I've been blessed, so I'm going to help them as they're going through this difficult time. And, and the, the Greek word for that, are you ready for this? The Greek word for that is koinonia. Two significant things. It means to share something with someone. And that happens a lot here. You write a prayer request. We may encounter one another, and you say, hey, Bill, pray for me. Two different families that I talked to this morning, going through the loss of some significant, one a sister and one a lifelong friend. Both of them died this last week. So sharing that with me and giving me an opportunity to pray and encourage them, that's part of, that's koinonia. It's saying, hey, I'm, I'm facing a challenge on my job, or I've got a relationship thing, or I've got a kid thing, or I've got a parent thing. It's sharing something with someone. And the second thing is sharing in something with someone. That's when you say, hey, man, I don't get in your business, but I'm here if I can help you. What do you need? Can I help you in some way? It was a dynamic that came about in that church that was powerful. Koinonia. Let me give this to you, and we'll close. An evangelist friend had a son who died suddenly. And when he lost his son, he and his wife just went into a deep state of depression. And I don't know how many of you have lost someone significant in your life, but I can tell you there's a tendency just to step off a cliff and to go off into a hole of grief. And when this boy had died, he said, at first you do what you do in ministry, you know, you just kind of, you know, put your best foot forward and you just fake it until you make it. I get that. I do that a lot. He said, you get to where you smile when you want to cry and you show up when you didn't want to show up and you do what you're not really motivated to do because you're expected to do it, it's your duty to do it, and you do it anyway. He was doing all that until he got to a point where he said, I couldn't fake it anymore. It was overwhelming. And a close friend of his saw the despair, and he saw how discouraged he was. And he said, man, wife and I got a little place down on the, on the coast. Why don't you go down there and just take a few days? Just chill, get away, relax, and he did. He said, I would walk the beach, but he said, I didn't hear the waves crashing. He said, I didn't notice the skies were blue. And he said, I didn't hear the seagulls. And he said, it was just like I couldn't get out of this hole, this grief, this sorrow. He said, it was consuming me. And he said, one day I woke up and he said, I couldn't explain it, but he said, for the first time, I wasn't depressed. I, I felt like I'd had all the weight of the world that just suddenly lifted off of my shoulders. He said, I stepped out of the house and I looked at the water and I heard the ocean and I saw how beautiful that was and I walked down the beach and I heard the birds and I thought how incredible that was. And he said, I felt for the first time in a long time I was alive. He said, my wife and I talked about it. We said, okay, we're ready to re-engage. And he said, I came home and he went to my office and he said, there I had a bunch of mail. He said, I was working through the mail and I came across a letter of a close friend of mine. And I opened it and began to read it. And he said, I want you to know I know what you've been going through. My heart has gone out to you. 
And he said, I just got on my knees before God today, and I asked God if he would allow me to carry your burden for one day. If he would let me just carry that for you, just lift that off of you so you don't have to deal with that. Just give you, give you a day. He said, I looked at the date, and it was the day that I stepped out of that house for the first time, and I didn't feel the weight on my shoulders. It's called koinonia. It's something we get when we come to church, or we should. I can tell you since Cindy has gone to heaven, that's something that I get. Even though we're all this social distance, I still get that. I mean, I still feel that. I feel the prayers of so many people and the love and support, and I'm hearing that from those of you that have gone through heartaches and sorrow as well. You feel that as well. I'm just saying, guys, we need each other. There's a dynamic that happens in this thing called a church that doesn't happen anywhere else. That's why it's important that we connect to it. No perfect churches. You know why this one isn't perfect? You don't have a perfect pastor for the love of God. It's never going to be perfect. But let me tell you what I can tell you about our church. We serve a perfect Savior. And when you're connected here, we're going to point you to him. He'll never fail you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the significance of your body on this earth, your church. I pray for my friends today who may never have trusted you as Savior. I pray this might be the moment when they just simply say, Lord, with all that I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart, forgive my sin. Be a reality in me. For those today who need comfort and encouragement from their brothers and sisters, this church is a family. This church is a fellowship. Help us to be careful to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to do what we can to help one another, because life is hard on everyone. Everybody's going through something. So help us to be sensitive to those around us, to love them, to pray for them. And Father, we'll give you thanks and praise. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.